The Spirit of God is moving upon His people and He is raising up a generation that is prepared for power that will touch this world. You are now listening to the last day's return of the historic faith with your host, Pastor Jeremy Anderson and Brother Matthew Marcel. This podcast is for the kingdom Christian in the end times. As aliens in a foreign land and ambassadors of our king, we proudly fly the flag with the cross as we sing. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Hello, brothers and sisters. It's the Remnant Warrior, host of the Remnant Report on the Next Chapter Radio Network. And this is our newest podcast. That is, uh, of course, entitled, The Last Day's Return of the Historic Faith. And this new podcast is something that I hope is truly going to reach a lot of people who are both already in the church and also outside of the church because whether you know this or not there are just as many lost people inside of churches as there are outside sometimes there's more and just like the the title of the new podcast is called the last day's return of the historic faith uh, we are in the last days and we are going to be taking a look at what the historic faith is that was of course originally taught by Jesus to his disciples and then uh, then was taught by the apostles and handed down to the anti-Nicene church and was you know universally kept and practiced for the first three centuries of church history and then after the first 300 years of the Christian faith it was still um The historic faith was still kept by kingdom Christians all throughout history. Uh, We are going to be talking today about what a kingdom Christian is because that is the very first thing we need to look at in understanding the historic faith is the difference between a kingdom Christian and an ordinary churchgoer, or a kingdom Christian and those who are a part of the organized religion, 
or in this day and time, you could say a kingdom Christian and an evangelical Christian. I'm not going to say that there are not people who are on their way to heaven that are inside the kingdom of God who still are not kingdom Christians because a kingdom Christian, first and foremost, is someone who keeps the kingdom teachings of Jesus Christ uh, among other things that we are going to look at today um, you know we're going to uh, talk about when the church stopped keeping the doctrines of the kingdom that were taught by Jesus and we're going to we're going to look at quite a a few different things today that I hope you guys will be able to listen to and get an a, a real understanding of just what it means to be a kingdom Christian and I'm going to go ahead and let you guys know that the historic faith is the faith of a kingdom Christian. Now, imagine that one day you're taking a walk out in the country. It's a beautiful day and and the sun is shining and the birds are singing and it's mid-spring. The trees are beginning to leap out. The fruit trees are past their flowering and They are in the early stages of fruit production. As you continue walking, you suddenly come upon a high wall and there's a heavy wooden gate that you can't see through. But there's a sign on the gate that says, Welcome, please enter. You look at your watch and you notice that it's 3 o'clock p.m. You say to yourself, I guess I have a little bit of time to look around before I need to start back home. So you enter through the gate and you look around. Right away, you're amazed at what you see. You immediately notice that all of the trees are fully leafed. Whereas on the other side of the wall, they were just beginning to leaf out. Even more amazing, many of the fruit trees already have a mature crop of fruit. You wander through the fields and the woods, marveling at the difference between the vegetation on the two sides of the wall. You're delighted to see the sunflowers in full bloom, along with the bleeding hearts, plants that don't normally bloom until summer. Before long, you realize that all of the plants are at midsummer maturity. As you walk, you realize that it seems like quite a bit of time has passed. Yet when you look up at the sky, the sun is still showing it's mid-afternoon. So you check your watch and you notice that the hands haven't moved at all since you passed through the gate. It's still saying that it's 3 o'clock. 
Finally, you get concerned about the time, so you head back to the gate. When you open it and look out over the meadows and woods where you were originally taking your walk, you notice that the sun is going down on that side of the wall, but here, on the side where you're standing, it's still mid-afternoon. You slowly realize that you just stepped into eternity. Now, what I've just told you is not a fantasy story. It's something that actually happens every day. This is what happens when a person enters the kingdom of God. No, of course, everything around you continues to change even after you enter the kingdom. Every day isn't sunny. Life doesn't suddenly become free of troubles. That's not my point. My point is that once you enter the kingdom of God, you've stepped into eternity. For one thing, you now come under a whole new set of laws. Eternal laws. And you have a whole new way of looking at things. A whole new way of relating to people. And a whole new way to live. You also have something new that you are seeking first in your life. You see, Jesus told the citizens of his kingdom, he said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. So, money is no longer what you seek first, or thrills, or politics, or fashion, or popularity. What you seek first is the kingdom of God, and also its King, Jesus Christ. William Law said this, he said, If you have not chosen the kingdom of God first, it will, in the end, make no difference what you have chosen instead. Now, I'm not saying that kingdom Christians don't have to concern themselves about money or that they can't have any fun, but those are not the things on the top of their list. For one thing, you have a new job to do, promoting the kingdom of God. There's a second message following this one that I hope to do very soon that will have to do with being ashamed to die until you have done something to win a victory for the kingdom of God, that, that we should be ashamed of dying until we have won some kind of real victory for the kingdom of God.
and I, I don't know if I'll be doing that message uh, right after this one because I've got several I want to do in the next three weeks at least I've got three different messages to do and I don't know what order I'll do them in but they will be a message that will be concentrating on winning some sort of victory before the kingdom of God before you die and another one will be a a separate episode another probably the second episode will be the myth of a Christian nation that's any Christian nation and the third one will be concentrating on what the specific early church writers said about the kingdom teachings of Jesus Christ in their own writings. We're going to be going through quite a few of the anti-Nicene early church writers, as I like to call them. Some call them the, the church fathers, but they would definitely not have thought of themselves as the church fathers. They would have not thought of anyone other than the apostles as the church fathers and Jesus Christ as our king. So, do all of these things happen happen to every professing Christian? Well, they did in New Testament times, except perhaps for a few false Christians and heretical sects. All Christians in New Testament times that Fest the kingdom teachings of Jesus Christ all held the same doctrines and they all put the kingdom of God first. This was the normal experience for almost every Christian during the first 300 years of Christianity. But then the church became more focused on creating a Christian world than in promoting the kingdom of God. Or perhaps I should say they imagined that they were working on behalf of God's kingdom by trying to establish Christian nations. In the end, they didn't Christianize the world. Although they did have an enormous impact on Western culture that we are still seeing here in the West, especially America today, but no, in the end, the world sucked them in, and they lost sight of the fact that as Christians, they were citizens of a different kingdom, and that kingdom 
could never be part of this world. It was a kingdom that could never be joined with any earthly country. Professing Christians began killing one another, torturing one another, forming permanent class distinctions between the rich and the poor, persecuting Jews, swearing oaths, and in general just all around ignoring most all of Jesus' kingdom teachings. However, not all Christians went down this blind path. There were tens of thousands of Christians who still saw the kingdom of God, who made a decision to live by the kingdom teachings of Jesus. These were men and women who were not part of this world because they were already citizens of God's kingdom. And I call these people the kingdom Christians. Some of these Christians left the institutionalized church and formed their own churches. Others worked within the established church. However, up until the Reformation, the typical pattern was that kingdom Christians uh, usually tried to work within the church. However, often they were forced out of the church. And one example was the Waldensians. They wanted to work as a reform movement within the Roman Catholic Church. However, the church ordered them to quit preaching. When they refused, they were forced out of the church and then they were persecuted by the Catholics from then on after. With the Reformation, though, Kingdom Christians typically left the established church and met as independent Christians. The Anabaptists are one example of Kingdom Christians who did this, but they tried to work within the institutional church in Zurich, Switzerland. Another examples, uh, quite a few other examples, were the Brethren, the Apostolic Christian Church, the Moravians, There were also the Quakers who focused on Jesus' kingdom teachings, even though the Quakers put more emphasis on the so-called inner light than on the scriptures themselves. And as a result of that emphasis, most Quakers today have strayed pretty long ways from biblical Christianity. What exactly distinguishes kingdom Christians from conventional churchgoers? Well, for one thing, kingdom Christians have a different understanding of what it means to even be a Christian. They 
understand that there is first the the gospel of Jesus versus the gospel about Jesus. The gospel of Jesus includes that, but it includes so much more. The, the primary emphasis on theology versus the primary emphasis on lifestyle is one of the big uh, different things that conventional churchgoers are distinguished from kingdom Christians by. And also, and most importantly, the gospel about Jesus is the good news about who Jesus is. So, again, just so you understand, there are two different things that you that people call the gospel. There is the gospel of Jesus and then there's the gospel about Jesus. The gospel of Jesus includes the gospel about Jesus, but it includes a whole lot more. The gospel about Jesus, however, is the good news about who Jesus is. William Law said this, he said, Christianity is not ours until we live by it, until it is the center of our thoughts, our words, and actions, until it goes with us into every place, sits uppermost on every occasion, and forms and governs our hopes and fears, our cares and pleasures. This and this alone is Christianity, a universal holiness in every part of our life, a heavenly wisdom in all our actions, not conforming to the spirit and temper of the world, but turning all worldly environments into means of holiness and devotion to God. We must alter our lives in order to alter our hearts, for it is impossible to live one way and pray another. Now, when I use the term conventional churchgoers, I'm not talking about liberal professing Christians or nominal Christians. I'm talking about the typical conservative so-called Bible-believing Christian. And one way that kingdom Christians differ from uh, conventional churchgoers is that their focus goes beyond just getting saved. Their focus is on serving their king and living by his teachings through the power that he gives us. 
And in contrast, the focus of conventional churchgoers is in getting saved. That's the theme of most of their sermons, most of their testimonies, and the message that they represent to the world. The problem is that their focus is in the wrong place. Getting saved is only the beginning. It's definitely not what Christianity is all about. You know, the popular message preached today oversimplifies Christianity, and it minimizes the kingdom of God. In fact, the popular presentation of Christianity today never even mentions the kingdom of God. Now let me say, I'm not making any pronouncement as to where these Christians will stand on the day of judgment because that is between them and Jesus and God is certainly, certainly able to forgive them and allow them passage into the new heaven and the new earth. But that will be between them and Jesus, like I said. So that is one major difference between kingdom Christians and traditional uh, churchgoers or um I guess conventional Christians. A second difference is how these two groups look for the truth in the scriptures. On any given subject, kingdom Christians look first at what Jesus taught. They want to get it straight what Jesus said about that subject. Then look at the totality of the other New Testament passages. They will never interpret the epistles in such a way as to contradict what Jesus said on the subject. In contrast, many, many conventional church goers usually go to the epistles for their doctrine. They make Paul's letter to the Romans the central writing of Christianity. And if Jesus seems to contradict Paul, then you better interpret Jesus in such a way that he doesn't contradict Paul. An ordained pastor once told me that the seminary he went to, the professors told the students that, quote, we go to the epistles for doctrine, not to the gospels. Meaning, we go to Paul for doctrine, not to Jesus. Now see, friends, that's Christianity turned upside down. When the early Christians wanted to explain Christianity to the pagans, they pointed the pagans to the Sermon on the Mount, not to Romans. That's because they were kingdom Christians. Now, you may be wondering... What difference does it make in real life? Whether you start with Romans or whether you start with the Sermon on the Mount, don't you still end up in the same place? The answer is emphatically no. 
historically, people have not ended up in the same place. Let me give you some examples. First, you got the doctrine of the two kingdoms. Being a citizen of God's kingdom is not easy. What makes this especially difficult is that unlike all other kingdoms, God's kingdom doesn't have exclusive occupation of any geographic area. So its citizens will always be living under two governments. The kingdom of God governed by King Jesus and a kingdom of the world that is governed by whoever the government of that country is. Now, which government are Christians supposed to obey? When Jesus was asked about whether we should pay taxes, his answer was this. He said, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Paul reiterates this principle in Romans chapter 13. He says that we pay our taxes and obey the laws of the land. The situation is not that different from a citizen of another country who lives and works in the U.S. as a legal alien. Let's say he's from... Uh, let's say he's from... Germany. Well, he's gonna have to pay taxes and obey the laws here in America. And he'll have police protection as well as the protection of the courts but he's still not a citizen he is a legal alien so therefore he cannot vote because it is not his country he's only a guest of this country another thing he cannot run for public office of any kind well, this is the very same way for a citizen of God's kingdom. You see, we live in various countries of this world only as aliens. And like any alien, we have to obey the laws of the land where we live. But as aliens, we don't get involved in the politics and governments of the countries where we reside. Now, what happens when Caesar isn't content with the things that are Caesar's, but wants God's things as well? Well, let's go back and look at Jesus' words. In Matthew 22, verse 21, he says, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Interestingly, the Pharisees hadn't asked Jesus about God. They had only asked about paying taxes. If 
by bringing God into the equation, Jesus demonstrated that the Pharisees had too narrow a focus. Their hearts were fixated on the issues of this world, not on matters of eternity. Yes, to be sure, they were to pay Caesar's taxes to him. Why? Because his image was on their coins. God didn't mint those coins. Caesar did. So give him back what belongs to him. But what about us as human beings? Whose image is stamped on us? Is it Caesar's? Hardly. God created us in his image. We belong to him. As a result, God has the ultimate call on our lives. Caesar has rights only to the things that he has created. He has created neither our bodies nor our souls, so he does not have a right to either. Now, as I've mentioned in Romans 13, Paul told us to subject ourselves to the higher powers or governing authorities. But he then goes on to delineate the areas of subjection of which he is speaking. He says, Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, notice that Paul lists only earthly things, taxes, customs, and, you know, duties levied against transported goods and such. But fear and honor, all these things are in the sphere of Caesar. Quite noticeably, Paul didn't list military service as one of the things owed to governing authorities. You know, as I've previously remarked, most earthly governments aren't content to have merely Caesar's things. They also want the things of God's as well. They believe that they are entitled to the absolute, unqualified, allegiance of all of their citizens and anyone who resides in their country. They even imagine that they own the lives of their citizens and to a large degree their souls. But as Tertullian asked, what will be God's if all things are Caesar's? Indeed, what do most professing Christians have left to give God? They typically risked their lives and given their money, their youth, and their souls, and their unqualified allegiance to Caesar. What do they have left to give to Christ's kingdom? Nothing but some leftover crumbs, their tithes, and a few hours a week of their time. And they imagine that this will be acceptable to Jesus. So what are we to do 
if the laws of Caesar and the laws of God conflict. Let's go back to our illustration earlier of the alien from Germany living in America. Suppose that the United States and Germany were to get in a war. And further suppose that the United States drafts the uh, legal alien from Germany into their armed forces. Well, if the alien accepts, what's going to happen? He's going to be fighting against his own countrymen. He's going to be fighting against his own people, the people from his own country. Well, it's exactly the same for us as Christians. If we're willing to kill our fellow Christians over an earthly conflict, then we are saying that the kingdom that has our ultimate allegiance is the United States or Ireland or Germany or whatever country we may be staying in. We're saying, I'm sorry, Jesus, but your kingdom is not what comes first in my life. It does not have my ultimate allegiance. My earthly country does. And I'll kill some of your kingdom citizens if that's what my earthly country tells me to do. In other words, we expect Jesus to be content to have his rulership relegated to second place behind Caesar's rulership. What an insult and a slap in the face to the one who died for our sins. And please, please do not think I'm exaggerating here. In nearly every war, conventional so-called Bible-believing preachers have not only told Christian men that it's alright to go out and kill other Christians, they have actually encouraged them to do so and denounced those Christian men who didn't go to war. Those of you who are familiar with the Remnant Report may remember a while back I did a program on the lie of getting saved through the sinner's prayer. And if you saw that episode, you remember that an evangelist by the name of Billy Sunday created this sinner's prayer. Now, (laughs) Billy Sunday was a uh, marvelous preacher who led tens of thousands of people to make decisions for Christ. But... He was also a conventional church preacher. He had absolutely no understanding of the kingdom of God whatsoever. And when the United States entered into World War I, Billy Sunday told men that they could be saved by dying in battle fighting the Germans. 
nearly all of whom were professing Christians themselves. And he said, quote, The man who breaks all the rules, but at last dies fighting in the trenches, is better than you godforsaken mutts who won't enlist, end quote. Now, the uh, so-called godforsaken mutts he was talking about were the kingdom Christians who wouldn't even enlist. Lyman Abbott, another well-known Congregationalist preacher, promoted World War I saying, Every Christian church should be a recruiting office for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God? Is America the kingdom of God? All I can say is that most conventional preachers are clueless, absolutely clueless, when it comes to understanding the kingdom of God. In essence, what conventional churchgoers are saying is this, I love you, Jesus, but what you mean to me does not quite rank up there with what my country means to me. We honestly think that that is going to be acceptable to Jesus. And it's not just a matter of not killing or fighting against fellow kingdom citizens. You know, Jesus commanded us to love all of our enemies or our opponents as well. He didn't limit it to a to our fellow kingdom citizens. Jesus said these things in the book of Matthew chapter 5 on the or in the kingdom I mean in the sermon on the mount. He said, "You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person." But whosoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whosoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on both the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you more than the others? 
do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, it's a little hard to say that you love your enemy if you're trying to kill him. But friends, we're called on to do more than not resisting evil. In the same sermon, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. So being a peacemaker makes us a son of God. So if we're a war maker instead of a peacemaker, then who are we a son of? Also, another thing that Jesus talked about in his kingdom teachings in the Sermon on the Mount was oaths. He forbids the citizens of his kingdom to take oaths. He says again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your own head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. This commandment doesn't create the dramatic test today that it did in Jesus' day and throughout most of Christian history. And that's because in the United States and in many Western nations, person is allowed to simply affirm that he is telling the truth instead of being required to take an oath. If he objects to taking oaths, especially on uh, grounds of it going against his beliefs as a Christian, but throughout most of history, people thought that human society and government would break down without oaths. And that's because people were <laughs> extremely dishonest and couldn't be believed unless they swore an oath in God's name. And the institutional churches quickly compromised on this commandment once church and state were joined together after Constantine in the 4th century. Theologians said that Jesus didn't really mean what he said. He was only saying that we shouldn't have to give oaths. That's what the theologians like uh, Augustine said. He's, but if the state requires it, then we should go along. Really? Is that what he said in the Sermon on the Mount? It's not what he said in my Bible in the Sermon on the Mount. Since kingdom Christians followed Jesus as their ultimate 
king their head, they all came to the same conclusion that Christians cannot swear oaths. This was true of the Waldensians, the Anabaptists, the Brethren, the Quakers, and other groups of Kingdom Christians. Jesus' commandment is plain, and so they obey it. Conventional churchgoers are typically happy to just accept some theologian's rationalization as to why the Bible doesn't mean what it clearly states. Another thing that is covered by Jesus' kingdom teachings is wealth and class. In ushering in his kingdom, Jesus introduced a new attitude towards wealth and class. He taught, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where the thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. Neither They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble.
Now, in parts of the Old Testament, wealth is looked upon as a blessing from God. I mean, this was particularly true in the times of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Job, and Joseph were all blessed with wealth. But in the kingdom of God, wealth is no longer seen as a blessing. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So, unlike in the patriarchal times, in the kingdom, wealth is a hindrance not a blessing. If we are wealthy, then we are supposed to use our resources on behalf of the kingdom. We don't live in palaces and spend our time on frivolous pursuits and pleasures. We use our money to help the needy and to further the kingdom of God wherever we can. And we don't make the accumulation of wealth our life's pursuit. We care more about storing up treasures for ourselves in heaven. Jesus also forbid class distinctions in his kingdom. He said about the scribes and Pharisees that they loved the best places at feast, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi, but you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. He who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whosoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. But after the joining of church and state in the 4th century, Jesus' teachings were largely ignored. In fact, the state churches invariably gave special favors and treatments to the wealthy. The church winked at the adultery which was commonly practiced by the wealthy. They also accepted and even fostered class distinctions between the wealthy and the poor, and between the nobility and the commoners. During the Middle Ages, most of the bishops came from the nobility and the church showered them with wealth. As a result, many of the bishops and archbishops lived in palaces. King Henry VIII of England 
was upset because the Archbishop of Canterbury lived in a larger palace than he did as the king. Now, another aspect that is a key difference between kingdom Christians and conventional churchgoers is the exercise of church discipline. Kingdom Christians see the kingdom of God as a real government with real authority. And they see Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as their constitution. Every real government exercises some form of penal discipline for breaking its laws. Otherwise, its laws become mere suggestions. It's no different in God's kingdom. God's kingdom is not the same thing as the church, but the church is an essential part of God's kingdom. It's the one place on earth where Christ's regal authority is recognized, or at least should be recognized. And so Jesus invested his church with authority to implement church discipline. Not only that, he commanded his church to practice discipline. He said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouths of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, then let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatsoever you loose on earth will also be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Friends, this is not a mere suggestion. It was a commandment. And it was a commandment that Paul reiterated when Paul reiterated what Jesus said when he wrote, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person.
this commandment was so ignored by the state churches that the first Anabaptist included the matter in the Schleichheim Confession. One of the things that would define an Anabaptist church was that it practiced church discipline as instructed by Jesus. In contrast, the state churches didn't discipline people for sin. They only disciplined and persecuted those who disagreed with the state church and dared to contradict it. Today, this is still a defining point between kingdom Christians and conventional churchgoers. Most churches will not discipline their members for sin, but they will require people to leave or teach anything contrary to the pastor. In my illustration at the beginning, I mentioned that when we step into the kingdom of God, when we become citizens of Christ's kingdom, that we step into eternity. One of the reasons I say that is because Christ's commandments are unchanging commandments. They don't change with the seasons. They don't change as society changes. It's views of what is right and what's wrong. They don't change with the culture of a country or a particular land. God's kingdom is eternal. That's why we read in Hebrews 13 verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's also why in his parable of the vineyard, he said, Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers, that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first. They did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come and let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. So it was his son that God sent last of all. There would be no new teachers, no new lawgivers after Jesus. It's for the same reason that Jesus told his disciples that none of them should be given the title of teacher, rabbi, or father. It's also why Jesus told his apostles, Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak it in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach it on the housetops. In Matthew chapter 10, 27. The apostles were commissioned to preach what Jesus had taught them, not to be teachers in their own right. However, many if not the majority of conventional churches teach that Jesus' commandments are not binding on Christians today. Some of them even go so far as to say that his teachings only applied to the Jews during his lifetime, but that when the Jews rejected him as king, then God ushered in the quote-unquote church age, the dispensation that we live under today. 
So Jesus' teachings don't apply during the quote-unquote church age. And or these conventional churches say that Jesus' teachings will also apply in the quote-unquote kingdom age after he returns. But they don't apply today except only as recommendations. Well, if you are familiar at all with the Remnant Report, then you know that this is the teaching of dispensationalism and that I believe dispensationalism to be one of the worst heresies that professing Christians have ever come up with. Even the Roman Catholic Church has never taught anything that heretical. The early Christians would have been in utter disbelief that anyone could even imagine such a thing. That the Sermon on the Mount doesn't apply to Christians? That those are only teachings for some future age or some past age that already has ended? Uh, it's because kingdom Christians recognize that Jesus' teachings apply to all disciples of Jesus from his day through the present and that they don't change with the times. It means that the difference between us and conventional church growers keeps growing. Today we're dealing with all sorts of matters that historically were not at all issues between kingdom Christians and conventional ones. One example of uh, one such teaching is divorce. Notice what Jesus says about divorce in Mark chapter 10. The Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. And he answered and said unto them, What did Moses command you? They said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said unto them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. In the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. So he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. For 19 centuries, conventional Christians upheld Jesus' teachings on divorce. Most of the time, there was no difference between kingdom Christians and conventional churchgoers on this issue. However, today we live in a culture that does not recognize the permanence of marriage. As a result, most conventional churches have compromised on the issue, and they allow divorce, despite such strong words from Jesus. 
as a result, this is now one of the biggest differences between kingdom Christians and conventional ones. Whether or not they allow divorce. Another example of such a matter that historically was not an issue between kingdom Christians and conventional ones, but is one today, is the New, Te the New Testament teaching on the head covering. Notice what the scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I have delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, then let her be covered. Now, this is the only place in the New Testament where the Christian practice on head covering is discussed. That practice was for men to not to cover their heads when praying or prophesying and women to cover their heads when doing so. Now, that this was the practice of Christians everywhere in the known world of that time is very, very well attested to by various early Christian writers like Tertullian. And through most of Christian history, it was not one of the issues that separated kingdom Christians from conventional churchgoers. All Christian women practiced it until sometime in the 1800s. And even then, it remained in the practice of many churches until the 1960s. But then it became politically incorrect, and women decided not to obey this commandment. And the ministers of conventional churches went right along with this, being too afraid to take the to take a a true biblical stand on it. I mean, even though they they still expected praying um, by men to be done with them having uncovered their head. And I know you know what I'm talking about, brothers and sisters. It's something you see today. If a man is praying, if he's even just saying the blessing over his food, he takes his hat off. He will not do it with his head covered. But suddenly... Today, this has become another practice that separates kingdom Christians from conventional ones, or at least conventional churchgoers, simply because the kingdom Christians know that Christ's commandments never change regardless of the times or what is politically correct. 
so they keep following them whether they're in season or out of season. Now, I mentioned a few minutes ago that not swearing oaths is not that big an issue today, at least in the United States. But in the Middle Ages, it was a huge issue. Conversely, for a woman to wear a head covering wasn't even remotely an issue in the Middle Ages, but today it is a huge issue. That's not because Christ has changed. It's because the world has changed. And most conventional churches has changed right along with the world. Now, some of you may be thinking, but Jesus never said anything about the head covering. This is just a commandment that's coming from Paul. My answer to you on that is this. Oh no, it is definitely not. If it was just something Paul was promoting, then you tell me why were the women in Alexandria, Egypt, and in Carthage practicing it. There is no evidence that Paul ever preached in any of those places. Furthermore, Paul himself as if in anticipation of this very objection, said that that's why, further on down in his letter, he rhetorically asked the Corinthians, Did the word of God come originally from you, or was it you only that it reached? Then he declares, If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. So Paul didn't invent the teaching on the head covering. He says that it and the other politically incorrect things he was insisting on were not, or excuse me, were not his commandments, but were the commandments of the Lord. No doubt, that's indeed why just before he mentions the head covering, he states this, Imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. This was not something new that Paul initiated something old that he had merely delivered to them. Not that that would have made a difference for for Bible-believing Christians. For we view the entire Bible as inspired of God and in Aaron. But it is still good to know that Paul didn't invent the head covering teaching. Now, I know that there are quite a few of you that probably don't understand this teaching on head coverings, and I will admit that it's one that I have not um, put near as much stock in as I should have, and will do in the present and future. Um, I've just recently started teaching this to my family, and will be 
something that I put in practice in my church. And I truly, truly hope that something like this will be something that you will look at the evidence in what was done throughout the entire church. I mean, the truly the entirety of the church for 1,800 years. It wasn't until the 1800s that this became something that wasn't done any longer. And like I said, it was still something that was done after then up until the 1960s. Now, lastly, this is the last thing we're actually going to probably have time to look at today is the teaching of modern dress, the the doctrine of modern, or I say modern dress, excuse me, modest dress. Uh, today, the biblical commandments concerning modest dress are treated very, very similarly to the commandment on the head covering. And I think all of us are aware of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, he says you have heard that it was said to those of old and you shall not commit adultery but I say to you that whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart if your right eye causes you to sin pluck it out and cast it from you for it is more profitable for you that one of your members should perish and for your whole body to be cast in hell. Now, that part of New Testament teaching is still preached today. Conservative Christians are very outspoken against pornography. Lust is still preached against. And, you know, all of that is good. But I think that Jesus made it quite clear that it is a deadly sin for us to even look at a woman in lust. For a man to lust after a woman is a deadly sin according to Christ Jesus. But there are two parts to this issue. One is for men not to look at other women in any way that could lead to lust. The other part, however, is for the women to dress and adorn themselves in a manner that will not invite the attention of men and cause them to lust after them. Notice what 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 9 says. In like manner also I desire that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. 
the second part of the lust issue is what has been almost entirely forgotten today in conventional churches. Yet through the centuries, this was not particularly an issue that distinguished kingdom Christians from conventional Christians, at least as to the modesty part of the commandment. I mean, on the part about the gold and costly clothing, most of the institutional churches looked the other way because that had to do with the rich and whereas kingdom Christians they did not kingdom Christians and kingdom churches they didn't look the other way when it came to the part about the gold and costly clothing nevertheless when you look at paintings throughout the centuries you know you'll see that that most Christian women dress modestly at least in sense of, in the sense of of wearing dresses that completely covered themselves. One of the main exceptions is that many wealthy women wore evening gowns that were very low cut. But but today today women who profess to be Christians dress in such a way that would have offended non believers just 75 years ago and the conventional churches say absolutely nothing about it so this too has become a defining point between kingdom christians and conventional churchgoers even though it was not particularly a defining point throughout church history that's simply because conventional churchgoers think that Jesus' commandments change with the times. And kingdom Christians, well, we recognize that Jesus is the same today, yesterday, and forever. Now, in conclusion, I just want to look at what is a kingdom Christian. A kingdom Christian is a Christian who first recognizes the kingdom of God as the primary the primary authority in his life. Second, seeks first the kingdom of God and its king. Third, he recognizes that the kingdom of God cannot be combined with any of the kingdoms of this world. Therefore, he or she avoids entanglements with the governments of this world and their politics and wars. A kingdom Christian is first of all a citizen of God's kingdom and only secondarily a citizen of the earthly nation in which he or she lives. His fellow countrymen are all of the other citizens of God's kingdom all over the world. He or she recognizes Jesus as their ultimate lawgiver, and they recognize his Sermon on the Mount as their constitution. King 
kingdom Christians will not violate Jesus' teachings, even if their earthly government commands them to, and will put them to death if they don't comply with the government. Finally, and lastly, a kingdom Christian recognizes that the commandments given by Jesus and his apostles don't ever become outdated or irrelevant. They are binding on every generation of Christians in every age. I want to close by asking the question, are you a kingdom Christian? If not, then allow me to extend our King's invitation for you to join us. Enter into eternity with us. Just think, you'll be joining the kingdom that will someday rule this entire universe. Until next time, I'm the Remnant Warrior saying God bless, grace, and